Would you open your Bibles this morning to the book of Ecclesiastes? The book of Ecclesiastes. This summer, under the title, When God Goes to Starbucks, we've tried to answer some of the questions people have about God and about Christianity and about the Bible. And, and we know we haven't exhausted the list of possible questions. In fact, I know that Pastor Jason sorted through that list and he surfaced the big four or the big five, and that's what we've been talking about. But that, that leaves all kinds of questions, doesn't it? All kinds of questions left behind uh, that we still haven't addressed. So we thought that it might be a good thing for us to do as we bring this study to a close to take a, take a look at what I call the Bible's most question-filled book and see what it has to teach us about living in a life, in a world that just constantly throws questions up to us. It's that book of Ecclesiastes. Now, this is going to be a Bible study. If you have a Bible, that'll be to your advantage. There's a, a, a Bible under the seat in the rack in front of you if you didn't bring yours along this morning. I have put a lot of the verses up here. You'll see them on the screen, so I won't have you chasing through all of the different verses, but there'll be a time or two where I'm going to focus you on a verse, and so you'll need a Bible in front of you to look at those. So open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Ecclesiastes. And let's start uh, with an observation that I don't have to tell you probably. Ecclesiastes is one of those, well, it's a really a hard book. It, it's, it's a book that it takes a while to figure out what it is that it's trying to say. Let me just give you one example. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, the writer says, Man's fate is like that of the animals. Huh. Same fate awaits them both. Really? As one dies, so dies the other. Well, who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. Now, if you read that verse with me and if you understood it, you got question marks already. It's a, it's, that's kind of a book that Ecclesiastes is. It, it raises questions for us to think about. So, so how could a, Bible, a book like that be in the Bible? Well, there are a couple of standard answers that are given, and uh, both of the standard answers start by reading Ecclesiastes from the front of the book. I think that's a mistake, and I'll tell you why in a little bit, but standard answer number one starts at the front of the book, and it notices that there's this little phrase, under the sun. You see it here in verse 3 of chapter 1. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Now, some people take that phrase and they say, well, you know, that's like you've got this great big brass sky over you and God is above, if God even exists at all, and, and he can't penetrate that brass sky under the sun. So if you just lived without a word from God, if you lived with no revelation that came from God, if you just lived under the sun, what would life look like? And some people think that's what Ecclesiastes is trying to show us. Life lived under the sun. There's a standard uh, study Bible that puts it like this. It says that uh, 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 this is the book of man reasoning about life. It's the best man can do. Inspiration sets down what the man is thinking in this particular case. It sets it down accurately. But the conclusions, it says, are man's conclusions. And therefore, well, they're not true. And I find myself thinking, isn't that interesting? Inspired 
untruth? What in the world would that mean? And does that apply to the whole book? I know there are places in the Bible, like in Genesis, where Satan says, you shall not surely die if you eat of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. That's a lie. Man did die. And it's included in Scripture. But if all of Scripture includes just accurately reporting all the lies that man thinks up, then there's not much benefit to having a Bible, is there? Inspired untruth? The whole book? Well, that doesn't make complete sense to me. Well, there's another approach then to the book of Ecclesiastes that also starts from the front of the book. And you can see it, it starts in chapter 2. It's this uh, answer that focuses on uh, Solomon's quest that's outlined in chapter 2. Now, in my translation, I have uh, chapter headings and division headings. And chapter 2, verse 1, right up above that, it says, pleasures are meaningful meaningless. And so here you have Solomon, this man Solomon, chasing down all the pleasures and, and discovering that they're all a dead-end street. Uh, and he does the same thing. Look at verse uh, 17, I think, verse 12. Uh, over my uh, paragraph there, the heading is, wisdom and folly are meaningless. And so here this man Solomon begins to explore, you know, the wisest things that he can know. He studies philosophy, he studies all those things that you can learn at university and, and at the best learning centers of the world. And he says, you know, that's a dead-end street. That doesn't go anywhere. Well, what about folly? I'll just go to the comedy club and I'll hang out there, you know, and I'll, I'll just have a gay time. I'll just laugh all day. What about... He says, nah, that's a dead-end street. And then in verse 17... It says toil or work or those things we build or those things that, you know, we put together. He says, you know, I've explored that avenue too, and uh, I discovered that that also is a dead-end street. So the second approach sort of says, we you know, what Solomon's trying to tell us is that he's tried life, and he's found every avenue wanting. This is sort of like Francis Schaeffer used to do. Some of you will remember the name Francis Schaeffer. They see the book as sort of a pre-evangelism. What you try to do is to show people that all these different avenues are dead-end streets, and so you get them lost so you can begin to tell them about Jesus and how Jesus is the answer. And that's true. And I think it's a better response than the first one. At least it's a fuller response. But I think we can do better still. I think the best way to read the book of Ecclesiastes is to read it backwards. I think you start at the back of the book and you make your way to the front. And let me show you what I mean. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Would you please? Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we're going to start reading at verse 10. Now, the verses will be up here so you can follow along if you don't have a translation. But if you do, notice several things. First of all, in verse 10 of chapter 12, the teacher searched. The teacher. Now, if Solomon wrote this book, why doesn't he just say he wrote the book? Uh, or why doesn't he refer to himself as King Solomon? Why does he keep referring to himself as the teacher or the preacher, which is what Ecclesiastes means, a preacher, somebody who gathers a, a congregation? Why doesn't he just refer to himself that way? Well, I think when we look at the book with this in mind, I think Solomon's given us a little indication of what's gone on in his own life. He started off as a very wise man. He was the wisest man that ever lived, the Old Testament tells us. 
And then later on in life, he began to dabble in things that he shouldn't. He had concubines, he had harems, he had wealth, he had all these things, and he lost his way. Now, he describes that journey in chapter 2. That's what we looked at when we were seeing those. He found that all those dead-end streets. Solomon explored all those. He explored them as fully, I suppose, as anybody possibly could. And he found out that those just weren't the way to go. I think now that Ecclesiastes is written at the end of that journey. And I think Ecclesiastes brings us to the point in Solomon's life where he is now a repentant, a wiser, older man who has been down all these false avenues and all these trails and he's been restored to the wisdom of godliness that God wanted him to have and he's and he's sharing that with us as a repentant teacher and so what he's attempting to do now is not to speak as a king not to speak as an overlord but he says look I'm, I'm with you in this I've been down these trails I, I'm a teacher and this is what I've learned I think that's part of the perspective. Now, I noticed a couple of other things in this section. The teacher searched to find just the right words. Now, here's the key phrase. And what he wrote was upright and true. So that first statement that said the book of Ecclesiastes is just man's best wisdom, the book of Ecclesiastes claims for itself, according to the end, that these are true words. They're not false words. There's truth here. We're supposed to find the truth that this man Solomon has finally come to learn through the experiences of his life. Now he says another significant thing. He says in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads, they're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Now, do you notice that word shepherd is a capital S? Who do you think that shepherd is? Well, I think he's referring to God, the shepherd, our Father in heaven. Remember Jason's question as he unfolded the, ser the series for us? Does God exist? Has he spoken? And how does he teach us to live? Well, yes, God does exist. Here's the shepherd. He does speak. He speaks through experience, and now he's going to speak to us through the Word, and he's going to tell us how to live. He's going to tell us how to live in an upright and true manner. And then look at verse 12. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Now, that reminds me, and it'll probably remind some of you, of books like Deuteronomy and Revelation, where there's a curse to anyone who adds to or takes away from Scripture. In other words, Ecclesiastes is claiming to be just like Deuteronomy and just like Revelation. It's claiming to be Scripture, and this is a warning. Be careful. Don't take anything away from this book because that same kind of curse will fall on you. So, I think what the teacher is saying comes from the one true shepherd, God. I think that what the teacher says is true. I think that what the teacher says is designed to help us to live upright and godly lives in light of that truth. My conclusion, taking the back of the book seriously, is that Ecclesiastes is revealed truth that comes from, a, I'll grant you, a unique and eye-opening point of view. It's that point of view under the sun. Uh, under the sun meaning I'm going to show you the reality of this fallen life. 
Not an unfallen life like Adam experienced in the Garden of Eden, but I want to show you the reality of life as it really is in the fallen world between, the fall, between Adam's original state and before Jesus Christ returns under the sun. I'm going to show you what your real, true, fallen life is like. And I think that's a part of what he's after here. Now, by the way, that explains some of the statements in the book uh, like the one that we saw at the very opening. Who knows if the spirit of man goes up and who knows if the spirit of a dog goes down? And the answer to that is, you know, if God doesn't tell us, we don't. If you're just in a scientific laboratory, if you're just using test tubes, if you're just using the scientific method, you're never going to figure it out. You need not that. You need also a sure word from God. And that's what Ecclesiastes is going to show to us here. So I think this book is trying to use shock or reality therapy to instruct us in aspects of life and practical godliness using the testimony, the experiences of a person, of somebody who's been there. Well, if that's the case, what is it that this book is trying to teach? What truth does Ecclesiastes contain? I think it contains two truths, and I think they are both true. And I think if you focus on one and don't see the other, or if you focus on the other and don't see the first, I think you have a warped perspective of life. I think both of these perspectives are true. See if you agree. Let's take a look at the horizontal perspective first. If we just look at life, let's just say, let's just look at this life and, and not consider God's role in life. What is it that we see and Ecclesiastes gives us a key phrase. It says, meaninglessness, meaningless. All is meaningless. Or the old King James Bible used to translate this, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. You can see that back in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. Meaninglessness, meaningless. All is meaningless. And how are we supposed to translate that? Well, I've seen a variety of words that were used for that. Vanity is what the King James Bible had. Frustration, life can be frustrating, can't it? Futility, life can be futile. Yeah, that's true. Life can be empty. I've developed this theological term. This is a biggie. You ready to write this down, Ola? This is going to be hard. Soap bubbles. Soap bubbles. Soap bubble of soap bubbles. All is soap bubbles. That's what he's saying. And you know what a soap bubble is like? We just had our grandkids over for the 4th of July, and they were blowing these huge bubbles, not blowing them. They had this big wand, and they made big bubbles. And you know, that bubble is so beautiful, isn't it? catches the sun, and you get a little ray of light in there, and it's kind of magical and mystical. And it's, oh, I'd really like to grab a hold of that bubble. And as soon as you grab a hold of it, pop, you got soap in your eyes. That's what this world is like. It looks like it's so you know, beautiful and so solid, and I would love to have this thing, and, and, and I want to just gather it to myself, and you begin to gather this thing to yourself, and it all just, it's soap in your eyes. It begins to sting. That's what he's saying. There's a stingingness to the beauty of this life. That's a part of the negative truth that he wants to tell us this horizontal truth. So he gives you some illustrations. Chapter 1, starting at verse 4, he says, let me just remind you of the endless routine of life. Generation comes and generation goes, but the earth remains forever. 
Sunrises, sunsets, and then it pants, is the literal Hebrew here. It pants back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north, and round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, and yet the sea is never full. And then he says, to the place the streams came from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough seeing, nor the ear is it filled with hearing. And isn't that true? Isn't there a certain dimension to this life? You get up, you brush your teeth, you have breakfast, you get in the car, you do the commute, you go to work, you come home, you have supper, you go to bed, you do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. You just add infinitum until you feel like you're a little rat on one of those wheels that just goes around and around and around and around. Isn't that a part of the truth of this life? Don't you sometimes just feel that way? I like the way Bruce Waltke has summarized it. He says... According to the teacher, we're all like children playing on the seashore. We build our sandcastles, and the inevitable tide washes them away. And so we do it all over again, only to see it washed away again. And on and on it goes until you begin to hate the process itself. That's what life is like horizontally. If you leave God out, from a purely horizontal perspective, under the sun. And that's true. That's true. Now, there's another truth you find in chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. Chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3, the teacher says, here's another thing I've learned. Verse 1 says, again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. Now, you've been watching the news, haven't you? And you know there are these little 7, 8, 9, 10, 12-year-old children trying to escape horrible conditions, and they make their way through incredible distances, and they get to the border just to be turned back. I saw that, Solomon says. That didn't just start in our day and age. That's been going on since the fall of man, oppression. He says, I saw the tears of the oppressed. That's true, isn't it? There are, are oppressed people. There is oppression in this world. I saw the tears of the oppressed. He says, and power was on the side of the oppressors. I saw all of that. And it's true. But it's not just the suffering. Notice what else he says. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no comforter. They had no one to stand with them, to be with them. I was watching a number of years ago a child abuse report on public television, and they were filming different interviews. And in one of the interviews they filmed, there was this woman who was uh, filmed uh, holding her child in her arm, and she was stroking this little baby. And I thought, well, that's very motherly, isn't it? And as they began to focus in on the stroking, they saw something really ugly. She was not just stroking the child. As she stroked the child, she would jerk little hair out of its forehead. She was actually torturing and comforting, torturing and comforting, torture, just doing just enough damage and then just enough comforting so that the child wouldn't cry. And I thought, what a horrible, ugly thing child abuse is. And does this surprise you that the count reported that later, several months later, this little child was found dead? It shouldn't surprise us. It happens, doesn't it? 
It happens. That's true, isn't it? That's the kind of fallen world we live in, isn't it? Not long after that, I remember walking out of my office. I was pastoring at the time. I had my briefcase in hand, and I'd had a good day of study, and things had gone well, and I was feeling pretty good, and I walk out, and there on the sidewalks, this little bird, a little baby bird that earlier in the day had fallen from its nest and landed on the cement and didn't die in the fall, but in the process of the slow, boiling, cooking sun of the day, it took minutes, it took hours for this little baby bird to die. And I remember thinking to myself, Lord, why is it that innocent creatures not only have to die, but they have to die in such horrible, ugly ways? You see, that's what this passage is saying. This world has that. In fact, he says it so strongly. He says, the people that live like that, wouldn't it be better if they weren't born at all? That's what he goes on to say in this chapter 4. And isn't that true? Isn't there an element of truth there in that? I think there is. And then one last example we'll take a look at in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Some of you may be experiencing this in your own work world right now or in your own life or somewhere says, I've seen something else under the sun, verse 11 of chapter 9. The race is not to the swift. Oh, that's interesting. I always thought if I worked hard, I'd get there. I always thought if I made good grades, I'd get there. I always thought that if I ran fast, I'd win. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong. Nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Isn't that true? I think it's true. The smartest people don't get ahead in this world. The fastest people don't win the races. You know, the best people aren't always on top. Isn't that true in this fallen world? He says in verse 12, as fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, sometimes people are trapped by evil times. So 2008, the crash of the economy. And some people had money, you know, in, in, uh, invested for retirement. And they lost a ton of money because the times were evil. It was nothing they did. The times were evil. They were trapped in an evil time. There are baby boomers, baby busters, I mean, that are growing up. And they say, Social Security's not going to be there for us. They're trapped in an evil time. It's not their fault. Isn't that the way the world works? That's the negative truth that Ecclesiastes is trying to teach us. It's trying to teach us that life is not just a soap bubble. Life is a puzzle. It's like a huge Rubik's Cube. And when you look at it, you, you just cannot figure it out. And nine times out of ten, things all seem like they're going wrong. That's the negative truth. But every so often in this book of Ecclesiastes, and Solomon is a believer... Every so often, Solomon is able to see above this under-the-sun existence. He's able to pop through that little bubble, and he's, and he's able to give us a, a, what I would call a vertical perspective. We've been looking at the horizontal. Well, well, now let's pop through and see the vertical perspective, and six times he does this in the book. Let's just take one example. Let's look at chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. I'm going to show it up here, and there are a couple of key words. He says, 
I have seen the burden God has laid on men. Okay. Now, what burden is he talking about? Not exactly the one we've just been discussing. You'll see it in that next phrase, he has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning. Here's the burden to man. Here's my burden. There's something in me that I want to know the big picture. I, I want to figure it out. Eternity is in my heart. I, I, want, I want all this to make sense. I want to be able to explore. I want to get my head around this whole thing. That's one of the reasons why we send these space probes out into the universe, so we can figure it out, so you know, we can capture it as if we could capture the infinite. You know, but we want to. We believe we can, and yet... Part of the burden is that God has so created things on the minute level, the small level, and on the macro level, God has so created things, you can't. You can't get to the biggest of the big, and you can't get to the littlest of the little, and you can't put it all together. That's the burden we live with. That's a part of what makes man man and not a cow. A cow doesn't have this longing. A cow isn't looking for eternity in his heart. A cow isn't looking to put it all together. That's a part of the thing that makes us unique, that has us, as the Bible says, that because we're created in the image of God. So we've got this burden. With this burden, however, did you notice these other three words? He has made everything beautiful in its time. And then I know there's nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good, and that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction. So in this world that I've been picturing in pretty negative terms, in this world there is what theologians call common grace. There is good. Even people with cancer wake up to a beautiful sunset. Even people whose marriages are breaking up have meaningful friendships and relationships that surround them. Even people whose jobs fail oftentimes find support. It's not as if this life is one or the other, is it? It is both and. It's not all bad. It's not all good. Now, there's a difference between a or an optimist and a pessimist and a realist. An optimist sees the glass and says, you know, it's half full. Pessimist sees the glass and says it's half empty. Solomon, the realist, sees the glass and said, sooner or later, half full, half empty, somebody's got to wash that glass. And that's the way the Christian life is. We look at life as it really is. We can't play the Pollyanna game. We can't play the negative game. We've got to get engaged in life and recognize in spite of all the evil, there's still an awful lot of good in this life, and we can find it if we follow after God. I think that's true. Life is a vanity. Life is meaningless, but not in the sense that it isn't worth living. God has put this burden on men and women, yet he's not left us without common grace, things like beauty and happiness and satisfaction. It reminds me of a statement I once read by Archibald MacLeish. He said, Now at 60, what I see, although the world is worse by far, stops my heart in ecstasy. Oh, God, the wonders that there are. Now, isn't that true? Aren't both of these pieces of the puzzle true? That's what Ecclesiastes wants us to know. That's what it wants us to believe. Now, 
In light of this truth, how are we to live? And that's what Ecclesiastes tells us. And we'll do this fairly briefly. I want you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. I don't have these statements up on the screen, so if you can turn to your Bible at this point. Four things. Four things, real quickly. Four ways that we're to engage this life, this mixed-up, crazy, two-sided life. Four things that the Bible tells us we're to do. First of all, in chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. Ship your grain across the sea. Oh, that's, or King James Bible, you say, cast your bread upon the waters. It means basically the same thing. Ship your grain across the sea. Invest. After many days you may receive a return. May receive a return. Go ahead and do it because you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures. Yeah, go ahead. Invest in eight, because you don't know what disaster may come upon you. Or how about done in verse 6? Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening, let your hands not be idle, for you don't know whether it's the morning that's going to be blessed or the evening to be blessed. So do both. In other words, get engaged in life. Be, be generous in your, in your living. Move out into life. You see, there are some people that say life is risky, therefore let's withdraw. Let's pull in. Let's hide. Let's, let's go sneak back somewhere and protect ourselves. Ecclesiastes says that's wrong. You can't live that way. You won't get God's blessing by living that way. All right, we've got, we've got this crazy, mixed-up life. So, since it's crazy and mixed up, risk. Take some risks with your life, some spiritual risk. It's better to do this risk of generosity than to, than to hug it all to yourself and to try to hide and to run away. That's his first piece of advice. Second piece of advice is in chapter 11 down to verses 7 and 8, and then you'll see it again in verse 9 and verse 10. It says, life is sweet. That's true, isn't it? There are dimensions of life that really are sweet. And it pleases the eye to see the sun. And that's true, isn't it? I know I get, you know, pretty down. I wake up in the morning and it's dull and overcast, but I wake up sunshiny. Well, it pleases my eye to see the sun come up. However many years anyone may live, and this is a biblical command, let them enjoy. Let them enjoy them all. So live riskily into the world, and while you're living riskily into the world, when you see these good things come your way, embrace them. Embrace your wife. Embrace your children. Embrace those people that are around you. Live meaningfully into life and enjoy those good things that God has given you. Quit worrying just about the negatives. Now look at verse 9. It says, you who are young, be happy while you're young. And let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Now, that does apply to young people. But it also has a secondary application. Even if you're older, do it now. Do it quickly. Don't wait another moment. Enjoy life, is what he's saying here. And then one more time, he says, in case we didn't get the point, verse 10. So then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off all troubles from your body for youth and vigor well, they're soap bubbles. So quit worrying about the soap bubble. He said, go ahead and whenever you wake up with that anxious feeling and whenever you have those troubles, you know, step into life, embrace the good, expect that God's going to be there both in the dark and in the light.
I think that's a part of what he's saying. Now he says a third thing. If you look down at the end of the chapter, the third piece of advice that he gives to us is in, uh, what is in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. He says, now, all has been heard, and here's my conclusion. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the duty of all mankind, for God will bring every deed into judgment. Now, on one side, that's a warning to be godly. But on another side, it's an encouragement. Remember one of the themes that was running through here? It's meaningless. It's so bubbles. It's vanity. It doesn't add up to anything. And now here he adds this finishing touch. God is going to judge it all. What God takes seriously must really count. Because God is going to judge everything in life, everything in life counts. There are no accidents. There are no happenstances. God is looking over it all, and God was asking you, okay, recognize that your life is not meaningless after all, because I think it has value enough to bring it into the weights of my own judging activity. It all counts. All of it. Every bit of it, he says. And then I'd be remiss not to say this last thing here. Now, we're to enjoy life, and we're to embrace life, and we're to recognize that it all counts. He warns us not to live ungodly ways, because that's going to you know, come back and bite us in the end, too. But notice what he says about that in verse 13, about the middle part there. He says, fear God and keep his commandments. Do you notice the order? It's fear God and keep his commandments. It's not keep his commandments and fear God. Last week in our ABF, we were talking about the law and grace gospel distinction. The law can appear in any kind of command in Scripture. Now, I don't know if you've noticed here, but I've just been thinking back over these different things. Uh, told to be generous. Well, what is God's standard of generosity? Well, I think a good example is the, is the Good Samaritan in the New Testament. And that was given to convict us of, do we all live that way all the time? And my answer is no, I don't. I'm not generous like that all the time. Well, then what happens to me? Well, I'm killed before the law. Or how about be joyful? What's God's standard for joy? Well, there's an old rabbinic saying that says, we will give an account for all we saw and did not enjoy. Now, have you been enjoying everything that you could enjoy? I mean, everything that was lawful for you to enjoy. Did you? Have you? Have you embraced? Well, then you've been killed by the law. If you did not do that, the law kills. Well, it says be godly. Uh, what's God's standard for godliness? Well, the New Testament says be holy as, I'm as, ho as I am holy. Uh, okay? Hold up your hands, all of you that are as holy as God. You get the point? If you put the commandment first, you die. If you put the gospel first, which is the promise, you live. And what is the gospel? Jesus did it. Jesus lived the generous life, even the sacrificing himself on the cross. Jesus lived the joyful life of the joy set before him. He endured the sufferings of the cross. Jesus was a godly man who lived so that I, in my ungodliness, can claim his righteousness as my own. Law 
kills. Gospel gives life. All of these commands come to me. I, I am to be joyful. I am to be generous. I am to be godly because of the blessings that I have, because of what Christ has accomplished for me on the cross. It frees me. I don't have to keep it as law. I now keep it as gospel. I now keep it as grace. So, conclusion, how do we live by faith in a soap bubble world where everything I look and everywhere I look at is a riddle, a puzzle, or a set of confusion? Well, to my unbelieving friend now, to that person at Starbucks that has not yet come to know Jesus as his personal Savior, the teacher says, God does not give you the key to life to be able to figure it out. God will give you himself instead. He has spoken. He wants you to trust him. If you will trust him, you can begin to taste some of how good life can be under his reign and eventually forever totally under his reign. But if you refuse him, whatever path you take, like Solomon, sooner or later will turn out to be a dead-end street. That's what I would say to my Starbucks unbelieving friend. Now, to my friends who are believers, and I think that incorporates most of you here this morning, I think uh, the old hymn writer captured uh, the sentiment of Ecclesiastes best. Remember that song? I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me of weary ways or golden days before his face I see, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. That's Ecclesiastes. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. Now, we don't have a closing song this morning, so I'm going to do something a little different. You were given a worship folder when you came in. You see that really good-looking picture of this guy on the back back there? Right next to that picture, there is a prayer. And I'm going to ask you in closing to pray this prayer with me. It's called the serenity prayer, and it really does capture the essence of what I was trying to say this morning in this Ecclesiastes study. Would you say it along with me? God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. To live one day at a time, enjoy one moment at a time, and accept hardships as the pathway to peace. To take, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. That's a pretty good promise, isn't it? I'd take that home and I'd park it on your refrigerator door or somewhere where you can see it and pray it on a regular basis. You know, Holly and I love this congregation. We love you. We're sorry to have to say goodbye to you at the end of the month, but uh, we believe that this is God's doing, and we just want to send you off with a word of grace this morning. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. Go and have a wonderful day. You're dismissed. <laughs>